VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Well, hello, everyone. This is the Ruck from the Times and the Sunday Times. Thanks once again for joining us. We are back and it's Monday morning in Paris. We're sat in the lobby of Stephen Jones's hotel. Owen Slot is with me. Chris Jones as well. Nice for Steve to turn up, isn't it, boys? Sorry, lads. I was knackered last night. and I, I, I woke up dying to join you. Then I fell fast asleep again. So just to explain this, we all arrived. We said we'd meet at Steve's hotel. Slotty's on his way to the Garden Or to get a Eurostar back to the UK. We'd meet here at 10 a.m. We're all sat down in reception and no getting hold of Steve. We had to send Slotty, the man on reception, up to wake Steve up. Yeah, he was so excited to go up to see him in his PJs. <laughs> it was he couldn't have moved quickly enough. Oh God, well, he, desperate. He, he said he'd never been up to the royal suite before. <laughs> it, I know, well, my room's so big. He, uh, it took me two ten minutes to find me in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, Steve, you're here now. That's the main thing, and we have a brilliant weekend of rugby to look back on in the World Cup quarterfinals. Slotty, I wanted to start with you because in the paper on Saturday you had a piece previewing the quarterfinals and you spoke about all the superlatives that had been used to build up to them and to look ahead to them lived up to expectations didn't they i actually think it surpassed expectations you you, you, you we all knew the draw for the quarterfinals and everyone could could spot a mile off that it was the four top teams but you know what what, what were they going to deliver would knockout rugby sometimes cautious um who's going to who is going to play play the fine margins to win that way you just didn't know what what it was going to deliver and Saturday night you go home after uh, Ireland being edged out by by the All Blacks and, and your head spinning and you're thinking that's one of the greatest games the greatest quarter final you get, again the superlatives you're trying to assess where it where it all fits in and and then halfway through the through the Sunday game of, of France and South Africa People are already declaring, well, that was the best game ever. There's been six tries in half an hour. I mean, it, we're feeling dead and, and as if we're hung over on a Monday morning, but I, I still can't quite believe the magnificence of two nights of rugby in the Stade de France. Quite, quite right. And, you know, it, is, it seems so only weeks ago we were bemoaning the fact that rugby had become so boring. It was box kick after box kick. Um, you know, no one counterattacked from from the long kick ahead. That was. That, it seems like weeks ago. Now with him, you know, rugby's gone mad. I mean, the first half last night, I was sitting next to a colleague from the Daily, Daily Mail, and um, it was just magnificent. The first half, we were looking at each other, thinking, "This is this is crazy rugby. It's great rugby." So the face of rugby's changed. The quarterfinals have been magnificent, 
um, there's a real pain this morning in, in inside my in my heart because I realised after the match how much I wanted France to win this tournament. But Chris, uh, it was just they were just fabulous four four fabulous games. Yeah, you know, it's it's one of the interesting uh, facts about uh, the ten World Cups is that you know five of, of basically the host unions haven't managed to get through to the final because you know you think well you you host the, the tournament yeah you got a fantastic chance of getting there but. France twice it's happened now they haven't managed it at all, you know, to win the World Cup while staging it so it's no guarantee and and the way that it developed yesterday look we, we went into it knowing there's going to be some kind of car crash because we're going to lose two of the biggest teams in the world the actuality yeah it's really hard to to defend a situation in which that happens because those teams put together those four teams we just watched in the past rounds put together matches that could have been the final it's also an element of the weekend and maybe we'll touch on this when we get into the games as well of a weekend of heartbreak and the contrast between the Mm. scenes we saw at the end and also probably retirements when we look at Johnny Sexton I'm sure we'll come on to him and Dan Bigger Antoine Dupont yesterday I saw just on the big screens just sort of hugging his family at at full time just couldn't believe it Cameron Wockey went to his knees it's a fascinating thing we have such drama and yet kind of very real contrasting emotions at the end of it we're kind of a, a bit used to seeing at the end of knock big knockout games those, those images of players falling to the ground and that sort of far off stare and um that that's i think almost a familiar picture but but the last the last two nights that they it it, it kind of felt bigger or, or it had more importance it, it it carried more significance than that for for sort of reasons that we're, that we're touching on that that Ireland team and that France team were two of the of the great European teams, and, mm. and, and it's such a dull thing to say, but they deserve to go further than the quarter finalists because Chris said that w- they were both worthy finalists. They, they were, and, and I think look, there's no point in saying that. Oh God, what the, what did they do with it? You know, the draw was a complete farce. I, I just hope that the person who did it has resigned. But also, it was always going to be this, as you say, Slotty. Um, and, but, but, but I think those of us, we're, not, we're none of us are French, but we have lived with the French for five weeks or whatever it is, and we've seen all their aspirations, we've seen the, their greatness as a team, and I, th- I will say here and now, I still think that they're the better t- they were, could have been the better team, in fact, were the better team, and I think they were unfortunate but it, it is just a, a, almost like a hammer blow to wake up this morning to see, to see that these marvellous French players are no longer, no longer in it. There's a real brutality, isn't it, about the whole thing? Because, you know, it was brutal rugby. Uh, it was rugby at its best. But the aftermath, and we've had this morning some more players in the French team announcing they're retiring, you know, Antonio and Telfino, they're going. This, it, this four-year cycle brings... Yeah, players to the point where they've given so much and to get to this stage, and then to suffer, the, you know, the, the, the massive disappointment that's at there, that, that 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 awful vision of players falling to the ground to their knees, mm. both Irish and French, knowing that they're never going to get this chance again, and it's been taken away. And unfortunately, these last two matches have raised the question again about the influence of refereeing. And you know, even down in Marseille, we've had the Fijians talking again about unconscious bias. For a period, I thought, because there were some fantastic referees going on, most of them English, doing great games, I thought we'd avoid this sort of thing. But Dupont raised it again last night, Slotty, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Dupont said he didn't think the level of the refereeing was up to uh, met the level of the game. Is that unfair? 
it, it was interesting. I know, we always knew at some point that officiating was going to be a big discussion at this World Cup, and we were all at the Paris Games over the weekend. And actually, my big takeaway from both of them was whilst there are some big calls and there's some marginal calls that you're always going to get at this stage, I thought the officiating was really good. <sighs> I, I've, I've... I did, put it this way, I don't know if officiating is the story after this weekend, after what we've seen and the brilliance we've seen. I'm not... I don't know. I, I struggle to... To it's b- b- I, I like I like your line there. I don't I don't want the officiating to be the story. I I, I I'm still wondering about Eben Etzebeth's knockdown, mm. whether it went backwards or not, or why did the referee not review it? Um, but at the same time, refereeing discussions we, they're, they're they're so hard to have properly because every match has a thousand decisions in them, and 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 some some are wrong and, and some are right, and whether you think the referee called the big ones right or wrong I mean it's it's such a bit bitter I mean Steve you've got a much stronger view on this than I I um, did a piece in the paper at the start of the tournament or after two or three weeks saying the referee would be fantastic it is now fallen off a cliff you think it's fell off a cliff I'm, I'm just the, well the scrums uh, uh, in, in, in the Irish game um, breakdown yesterday uh, really really poor you, there were green jerseys um, hanging around on the floor after every tackle. The fact that she, for, sorry, for, which green jerseys, South African or Irish? Uh, oh, sorry, uh, no, well, both. But I mean, <laughs> um, South African. After Clerk, after a shocking bit of play, threw the ball deliberately to try and win a penalty. That was a card all over. That is yellow, a yellow card. I'm afraid that um, Ben O'Keefe, who was so good in the first game of the tournament, was absolutely not on his game yesterday, and I think it'll cost him. Or at least it would have cost him the final had New Zealand um, not uh, not been in it. It really was a car crash, wasn't it? The breakdown. We, you know, Ireland were always going to do that anyway because that's you know, that's how they caused their mayhem. But they they came up against a brick wall themselves. I thought that the South Africans really took it to the to the French in, in that breakdown area. And Quagga Smith, you know, pulled off a very very big turnover. And Nigel Owens has, has talked about well, the offence isn't the fact that. Yeah, you know, the hand was on the floor. It's whether you're supporting your body weight, and yeah, you know, which he wasn't exactly. So yeah, these that, are these that. are really split second decisions. Yes, we accept that it's t- terribly difficult for the refereeing, but that, I just thought that it got away from Ben. I thought I thought as going it, to the match, he was he was really on good form. I thought, but that match, I thought no, that was one of the uh, Alfie, what you brought up, we, we're getting slightly getting away from the magnificence of the games, which they were. Mm. So, yeah. but you know, that it just leaves a sour taste, but. Uh, it's a difficult game to referee. I, I, I don't mind saying that. I yeah. hope Wayne, Wayne Barnes does the final. Yeah, Steve and, and will be doing it because England will be there. <laughs> well, we can get onto that fairly shortly. Also, also, I, I also also say this that um, the South Africans are uh, a bunch of twisters. The explanation they gave for the continual coming on and off of HIA, they were actually resting players, and that should have been stamped down on by the by the f- the, the, the fifth and sixth officials as well. There's no way they were they were doing HIA; um, they were just calling people off for a rest. Well, lots to get into on the pod. I think I probably maybe am, maybe in the minority here. I get the impression in terms of the officiating. I think it probably comes back to what I said before, and that I feel like. That's not the story, but maybe it will come up again and maybe lots of people listening will, will also 
be agreeing with you guys. Um, so the semi-finals are just to round it off: New Zealand versus Argentina on Friday, and then South Africa mm. against England on Saturday. So in terms of today's podcast, we're actually splitting responsibilities. So us four here are going to look back on the quarterfinals in Paris. Those are the matches we were at as Ireland were heartbroken by the All Blacks, and then as we've just mentioned, South Africa silenced the French last night as we're recording this. And then we're going to hear from Alex Lowe and Will Kelleher, who are going to review the action in Marseille. They watched Wales fall to defeat to Argentina. Ooh, Alex Lowe and Will Kelleher. But I know, I feel like we haven't spoken to them in person for a while on the pod, because oh, our paths haven't, haven't crossed paths. But no. we'll, we'll be hearing from them in Marseille. Uh, and obviously, Wales game, as I say, and also England scraping past Fiji. And we'll name our god or goddess of the week. But up next, we'll get more into those Paris quarterfinals. Okay, so into the quarterfinals that we watched, as we've referenced already, two brilliant games. I don't know if there has been two test matches back-to-back at the same venue of such quality. Mm. Um, It's been really interesting, actually, the Will Kelleher's How to Win the World Cup series, which listeners can get from their podcast feed, which is finished now, where he's spoken to a member of every single World Cup winning team. When he spoke to Comrade Smith for the 2011-2015 All Blacks, He was really interesting on how the All Blacks had to identify that World Cups were different. They obviously always had great teams going into tournaments and they always came up short and they had to identify that when it comes to a World Cup, there's something different about it. I just wonder whether that is part of the lesson for both Ireland and France as we reflect upon that. A brilliant four-year cycle, but when it comes to the World Cup, when it comes to the knockout, there's just something different that you need to have. I think I think it's really interesting that um, Ireland and France both won their massive uh, pool group pool games, and that New Zealand and South Africa both were both defeated in their pool games. But when you got to knockout rugby, it was it was reversed. It was the other way around. He, he, they were both so close that you you're, you're looking for reasons why. You know what 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 was the difference and. And, and as mentioned already, one tiny refereeing call on either night would have given you a different winner. So does that mean that New Zealand and South Africa, because they're um, more experienced knockout teams, had the nous and the game experience to get them over the line? Well, you, you could say so. But again, we go back to this thing. There were five points over two games that separated four teams. I mean, how can you apportion... The, a, a team's approach to a game where, when they're separated by such small margins. I, I totally agree with that, but I also think that um, let's that look at the other great thing in rugby, Lions Test matches. It, is very, it was quite rare for any team on Lions tours to win two matches in succession because when you lose, a sort of desperation comes in. It forces you to examine yourself and to examine your tactics. Now, there's, there's one team that's always been ahead of people uh, in, in that regard, and that's New Zealand. New Zealand have not been a great side, but they did a spectacular number on Ireland because they, 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 when they came out, they knew exactly what they had to do. For instance, they knew that James Lowe was going to kick miles and, miles and they had plans for it. It was one of the great comeback wins after a defeat in planning precisely what you had to do and executing it beautifully. Yeah, I thought that New Zealand were, were very clever in the way that they, they set up their, their short kicks rather than the long kicks. They didn't give 
Ireland exactly. the ability to, to to counter it in the way that I thought they that they they probably expected to, and they were they were just what you'd expect from a good New Zealand side. And they haven't been a good New Zealand side probably since that that win in South Africa. That, that they they recognise on the pitch, and they also had two or three key players like Ardi Surveyor who were just having the games of their lives and just when there was a mistake, you know, he was playing fullback, he, you know, he was playing scrum half, he was playing every position but back row, which is what he's meant to be doing because he understood what, what his role was in that game and he was such a focal point. And I, I look at that Irish side and I think, you know, that when you wanted them to, to, to produce a really big performance from somebody who could drag them forward... It just but that key those key moments it wasn't there. Well, the New Zealand did have those guys. That Richie Moronga tr- break was absolutely superb. He spotted a gap between Van der Fleer and Sheehan, and he and next minute he's fifty meters downfield. These these are fantastic moments that teams with real game breakers have. And I thought the game breakers for Ireland didn't quite do it. I didn't see enough from Ring Rose. Well, the I the, I more the fascinating him. thing about the about about Ireland is is how is what was the reason that they've been having eight or nine or ten out of ten performances over mm. the entire year and then you get to their knockout game the biggest game of, of their of their four years and they're just half a notch down was it the the, the set the stage that the the pressure that how how big it was or was it that they just finally hit a wall or did the or did the all blacks do do that to them well they were just out thought sorry by the All Blacks. And that leads us on to the whole Ireland quarterfinal not getting past that. I feel like Ireland losing in this quarterfinal has nothing to do with any sort of mental block or hurdle and not being able to get that past that stage of a competition. I think it simply comes down to they came up against an All Blacks team that produced their best performance, as you said, Chris, for years. And maybe Ireland was not quite at the, the levels we've seen. They were maybe slightly off it. And in these sort of games, that's enough that means you end up losing. Uh, also, I think that uh, there was one critical um, thing, that that is um, they had a 38-year-old uh, fly half who looked all every one of his years. Now, d- d- when you're cruising through other games, Johnny Sexton is still a considerable player in many areas. When you've got a 37-phase um, move and you don't look like scoring once in, 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 in the key moments of a game, 37 phases. They didn't score because Johnny Sexton has completely lost his pace and they had to bring on the reserve fly-half Crowley just to give some edge to it because you could only move at the pace of your fly-half. And he, he, he was standing he, still at one he, point. Uh, and, and, and he was just sort of shuttling left, shuttling right. What did uh, the all-black coach call it? Cut-and-paste rugby. And I'm afraid that um, they didn't have the, the guts or the bottle to get, take off Johnny Sexton probably after an hour, an hour and, and, and let the rest of them run. That would have been a massive call, wouldn't it? Because it was Bill, you know, this is Johnny's last hurrah. He was going to lead him to World Cup glory. And yet to be the coach then takes him off with 20 to go. It's, but those are the big calls. That's the the captain of after 44 minutes. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> what he's paid for, though. That's what the coach yeah. is paid for. Mm. Well, it brings us on to Johnny Sexton, though. I mean, despite the disappointment, and blimey, there were tears in his eyes at the press conference, mm. in his post-match interviews. A sensational career, um, which I think people are starting to reflect on once the, the disappointment of the quarterfinal loss kind of fades away. Well, he's yeah, he's been Mr. Ireland, isn't he? And yeah, will they will they live? Is there life after Johnny Sexton? There certainly is. Talking to colleague David Walsh, and he's very 
upbeat about the youngsters coming through. Absolutely. And now it, it will be a case of bringing in those key elements to add to what's already there because it, they, suddenly, they haven't suddenly become a, 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 you know, a broken flush. They are a good team. They, they will come again. They'll come again in the Six Nations by just adding a few new young players to this team. I don't, think, I don't pace. think they'll miss a beat. I think they'll carry. I, I, I'm, I'm with Steve. I think Sexton's been brilliant, but but he 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 finally looked his age. It was going to happen at some point. Uh, there's so many good players around them, but but, but on Johnny, um, you know, he, he has been one of the all-time greats, and and to make it worse for everyone, he's now officially the best dad in the world as well. I mean, there's no <laughs> yeah. room for any of us to go. Well, I'm I'm, I'm but we are the best contenders as well. You, well, yeah, I know. Sorry, I've got to say he's just yeah. edged ahead of Steve Jones as dad of the century. Do you know what? I've got th- tickets for the semi-finals. It cost me a fortune for my kids. So, I mean, you know, I think Johnny's second. Well, he Se- gets his tickets for free, so I think that's, that's no, one did, well, against he did, him. I he? didn't. Yeah, yeah. Alfie, I think we should remember the the the, the, the at a time when the Six Nations has not been great, how much Ireland have elevated it. Um, how much they, 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 they took down the All Blacks, what's it, four, four, four times in the generation. So they've really, really elevated rugby. It's been the best Irish team I've ever seen, and I hope they, they do recover, and uh, France too, actually. Yeah, and I agree with what you guys have said in terms of you feel like the systems, the pathways, the structure, the coaching team is kind of in place still for Ireland to be successful going yeah, forward. True, I, I'm in. I, I'm in the the view of, of sort of looking at the um, looking at the age profile of these teams. So I looked at England when they came up short in the final four years ago, thinking, well, they should win it in four years' time. Uh, but that's another that's another subject altogether. Mm. But you look at you look at the French team and you go, well. Hang on, they're going to be they they're going to be better next year. Sorry, in, in four years' time, and I think the Ireland team possibly well not quite so sure because there are obviously key elements. But but those those teams, you know, we go that we go that's that's the end. They've hit the wall. That's the end of the year, or an era, or whatever. But I just think they could and should be better. Mm. One yeah. team that will be better in four years' time is Fiji, because they would have had another another couple of years, three years of uh, Super Rugby. For the Drua, who provided 18 players uh, for this squad, and they are going to hopefully be given more international rugby. You never know. Yeah, yeah, world rugby might actually uh, you know, break the cycle. But you know, if you do give these teams international experience, then they can win the sort of games that, that Fiji should be winning. And uh, you know, Ireland have got that in spades because the, Le- the Leinster Academy is just producing so many fantastic players that, are, that Andy Farrell is, is yeah, he can look forward to a fantastic period ahead. Let's finish off uh, with the All Blacks Island game on a few words for New Zealand. We mentioned him already, but Ardy Surveyor in the mix zone after the game, which just a little kind of behind the curtain for the listeners, was an absolute scrum with everyone trying to get quotes from the players. I was somehow managed to be kind of there at the front and then over my shoulder I heard a question. It came from Owen Slot to Ardy Surveyor asking if it was his best ever performance. Slotty, it was, <laughs> it was hard work trying to get some decent content in that moment. But Ardy Surveyor was sensational against Ireland. Yeah, he was. He was, he was hilarious. I mean, it was it was it was hilarious because it was like like a super Superman performance. I mean, Chris has already said. You know, he was one minute he was box kicking from from scrum half, and then he was touching down artistically like a winger. And plus, you know, his breakdown work and his carrying work was. Yeah, I mean, I I, I kind of had. Sam Kane is my player of the of the weekend, which is you haven't said that many times. Was just, was 
bonkersly good. He was ridiculous, wasn't Look, he? Sam Kane's performance was tremendous. But Ardi Sevilla, when the All Blacks have been average, Ardi hasn't been. He's been carrying that pack. Yeah. 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 Game after game after game. It was very nice of, of Sam Kane to actually produce his best performance. But, but then if you ask what are the top five performances by Sam Kane, Steve, I think you'd struggle to get the other four, well, wouldn't you? Don't forget, Ardi was the only All Black who played in, in two, well, who played properly in 2019 in, uh, in Tokyo. So, yeah, he did, did, did really well. He's a figurehead. He's a great guy, but um, I just think that if I had my hero, it would be Ian Foster because of the way that they laid out the tactical plan, but Ardy carried it through to the letter. That's, you know, one of the aspects of this is which is so fascinating about this World Cup is that Ian Foster is a dead man walking in terms of his job because you know, Robertson's waiting to take over, and Ian yeah, has been under the most incredible pressure to deliver an all-black team at a World Cup that's doing well while knowing uh, they don't want him anymore. It, yeah, I mean, Steve Borthwick's had pressure, but no one's had pressure like Foster coming into a tournament. When, you, when you, you're finished... How, how much was it Ian Foster's tactical plan and how much Joe Schmidt? We can't uh, ever know, obviously. We, we, we won't know. I, I, I suspect you're making a good point, Sotty. You're inferring it, that it actually it was Joe Smith's victory and Foster had nothing to do with it. And he sat in his room. <laughs> <laughs> so New Zealand set themselves up then a semi-final against Argentina. We'll be hearing shortly from Alex and Will on Argentina's victory over Wales. Let's have a little chat about uh, the Springboks and then beating the French. I mean, it's one of those games that Slotty and Chris, when we were sat here chatting about it, you try and go back through and remember all the tiny moments that now look so pivotal. I mean, the Cheslin-Colby charge down is probably one massive moment we can speak about. And Chris, you were saying actually that you asked him about that after the game. Yeah, I asked Cheslin how many times he charged down kicks. And he said, I've never charged one down before. And what a time to do it. I mean, we all know he's quick. Uh, but as he pointed out, he played for six years with Thomas Ramos. He knows the way that Thomas prepares for <laughs> kicking. And he said he was behind the line. And when he set off, he was legal. And it was, yeah, he didn't even have to get off the ground. He was so close to Thomas when he blocked the kick. It was, you know, that it was during that sort of period where so much was going on. Uh, you know, it, it, the match was on fast forward. There was just so much going on. You, the, the, you, you had to slow it down to remember what had happened. There's no question that um, he, that before the game they knew that there was a chance of that because I've never seen. I've seen uh, kicks charged down by tall forwards rushing out from underneath the posts for short range. I've never seen anyone charge a kick down like that. I tried to rack my brains, and they must have uh, known from Ram- Ramos that he does have a slow run up and. It was absolutely magnificent a, a play, and then uh, the guy scored soon, soon after, or was it just before? And uh, you know, so what? A, what a contribution he made, and that—that's just shattering for the kicker. I mean, he hardly got the ball off. It was—it it wasn't if he, you know, he, he, he kicked the ball into into his own into his body. Well, if he'd been one second earlier, he could have actually picked the ball up from the tee and walked around him, couldn't he? He was that quick. And dropped the, dropped the goal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It was an interesting game as well in that particularly look at that first half and the six tries we had in, in, in that first half. It was almost a not kind of a typical Springbok performance. I thought it was quite a good example of how they have tried to develop and adapt their game, certainly since the Lions tour when you think about the style mm. of rugby that you guys all had to sit through on that to where they are now. And I thought that really sort of came to fruition for them last night because they've made sure that they've developed their attack. It did. It, it was interesting because I don't think in the end they could make up their mind what to do because for the first half they had um, Damien Willems at uh, the full-back. Uh, they, they had the, the, their new fly half 
and a, a kind of new style and they did play some good rugby. Second half, they got rid of all that lot and brought on the old guard and played old guard rugby. Uh, I, th- I think that, that that was how they did it. And um, I don't think they actually really knew what they were doing. I mean, to, to take your captain off and four others at halftime or near halftime, uh, I just think it was a gamble. But it was the old guard rugby that, that won it, though, wasn't it? Yes, it, it was, was. It was bringing on the subs and, play, and playing the old guard way, well, if you like. And, and I tell you what, the new guard, uh, they, 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 were, they, they, they were quite good, but they had absolutely enormous assistance from France's miserable performances under the high ball. They were absolutely terrible. These days, people practice jumping in the air and whatnot. People like Wocky and one or two others, they just could not catch the high ball. Well, it, was, if, it, was if, all, uh, it was all um, identified and planned, wasn't it? It was all di- directed at the left wing, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. They, 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 again, just like the All Blacks, they'd done their, their homework. Oh, yeah, completely. The charge yeah. down, they, they identified the left wing was, was, was the smallest guy out there. They, they stood Peter Steff to toy out there at times so that he was going to have a massive height advantage. And then once they got those opportunities, they were clinical. Mm. Lovely little grubber kicks because you know, if you got someone like Colby on the wing or Adens on the other side, these guys are so rapid that even Penno looked slow compared to Colby when he was chasing him. You know, and that sort of clinical edge is is great to see. I mean, if you're talking about you bringing on the old guard, why did they bring back uh, Andre Pollard? Mm, can't work that out. Let's have a, a penalty on the halfway line to win the match and yeah. uh, upstairs. Up, Pollard nails it. I mean, that's why they didn't bring another hooker in. It's worth remembering as well, and I know what you're saying, Steve, in that, again, France, similarly to Ireland, will look at things and think, we didn't play as well as we have done previously. But France hadn't, well, they'd lost at home once in four years. That was to Mm. Scotland when there was no one there. For the Springboks to come in in a World Cup and and beat them, I think does say a lot about how well the, the Springboks played as well. It's probably the only thing that this is. This podcast is rapidly descending into me disagreeing with all your points, but I think it's just worth saying that it was also a very, very good Springbok performance. They, they don't excite me. They don't make me warm to them. Is that a hangover from the Lions tour? Do you think? Because I think their game is very different now. Um, I think their game. They would like to think it's different. They, they've they've got some what they used to call transformation players in there who were very good, but I don't think they have yet brought themselves to let them loose. Mm. It's as simple as that. They um, were a Jekyll and Hyde team, weren't they, in their selection? Because they picked running halfbacks, and then on the bench they had two of the great <laughs> kicking tacticians who can get you into places where the opposition don't want you to be and you know mm. and i think they sort of they were quite in love with that idea they, i don't think they made the b- best of either but i mean Lubbock, everybody said about his kicking he nailed it from the wrong side on the touchline conversion and that must have given him a massive lift yeah. Yeah. and then sort of 44 minutes into the match uh, thank you and good night and they took off the captain and all the and, and the halfbacks it was a massive call i mean there's obviously it was predetermined but it wasn't exactly they had a feel of the game to take them off at that stage. They always, they? They, as you say, they, it was largely predetermined. I mean, they, having gone um, seven one and, and six two benches for the, for the for the World Cup to then change it to five three and, and, yeah. and leave off Faf, it was it was clear that they were going to try and play a more try scoring game for the start of the game and then tighten up and go traditional Boca rugby for the for the end of it. 
Interesting. (laughs) So the Springboks, they set up a semi-final against England, who beat Fiji in Marseille. And up next, we'll head to the south of France. We're here from Will Kelleher and Alex Lowe, who watched that game. They also watched Wales lose to Argentina. So over to Will and Alex. Hi, Alfie. Uh, Alex and Will here, down in Marseille, still sort of trying to get our heads around this epic quarterfinal weekend of the World Cup. We're heading up to Paris shortly, um, but thought we'd, we'd sit down and, and ruck before we hit the train. Will, yeah. what a weekend. Oh, it was amazing, wasn't it? I think we spoke last week about feeling like the World Cup was happening in other places, and we were watching both the Paris games that the lads are talking about and saying it might look like a different sport up there, but at least we got some amazing games down our end, didn't we? I mean... Wow, I don't know where to start. Should we start with the Wales Argentina because we? Yeah, I think we, chronologically, I, th- I suppose. I think we'd always said that that the, qual- the difference in quality would be obvious between the Paris quarterfinals and the Marseille quarterfinals, but they were always going to be evenly balanced. But I'm not sure anyone would have expected all four games to go down to the last minute, like the last player, the last minute, almost. The game was on the line, right to the death. In, in all four games, and that's that's just quality drama, quality entertainment, the, the tension and that we had at, at the Stade Velodrome for for Wales-Argentina, followed by England, was right up there, and that makes a great game. The quality wasn't as good as, as the lads saw up in Paris, two of the greatest international games you'll ever see, but you can't ask for more than two evenly matched contests that go to the wire. I love, uh, our, some of our job is to bring the colour of, of the days that we're at, and we're so lucky to do what we do, and I just absolutely adored that Saturday uh, where you've got the Welsh fans singing on the trains yeah. coming in the metro station into Do Prado metro station. And then it was the same, I think, for the England game, but the Argentinian fans almost, it was like they dropped a pin for each other and said, right, we're all meeting outside this bit of the ground. And if everyone has been over this weekend to the, the velodrome, you'll know that there's these huge stairs that go up towards the stadium, which is actually where a lot of the England and Argentinian fans got stuck mm. on the first weekend. Um, but yeah, the Argentinian fans, they were all in their 07 rugby shirts or their Mascarano or Messi or Maradona football shirts. And they all do this thing. And I, I've, I've found it hard to describe when you can't see what I'm doing, but it's this flinging hand thing that yeah. they all do. And they have this chant that they sang at the football when they I mean, won jump. the World Cup and jump around. Oh, it's yeah. And they were doing that from... Uh, two and a half hours before kickoff, and just I love the colour of it as well. You've got the red shirts against the the white and blue, and it was it was brilliant. We used to Welsh fans not being outsung around the world, but mm-hmm. the Argentinians beat them hands down, didn't they? And then we had the game where Wales should have won. Oh, they should've should've won. Should've, should've won. 17 nil. It should have been half time at least. Yeah. So they're, they're ten nil up, and they're on top, and. Just where where our seats were slightly uh, around the half the, around the twenty two for this game and Wales down in front of us had three lineouts in the in the Argentinian red zone and couldn't complete any of them. They had a couple of line breaks at Dan Bigger's line break and then Gareth Davis can't quite hold on to the pass. Then there was George North going down the right wing and, and flinging a pass inside oh, to Josh Adams his shoulder. shoulder. That to what, when you first saw that, you thought, oh my God, how has he dropped that? But then you look again and it was a bad pass. He fizzed it, it too hard, it, yeah. yeah. And so you're like, they've got five chances there. And, and Argentina were threatening at, at moments, flashes. Um, I guess a little bit like Fiji did to, to England through the first half. There's a, there, was always a, there was always an underlying danger that they could score, but they weren't building pressure. 
Wales built pressure and then they couldn't convert it. And you just felt that if they'd gone to 17-0, like you say, if they can take on one of those, then then the game's in control and, and Argentina really have to chase. And we saw the Pumas against England when England had them in this vice grip. They couldn't get out of it. They, they, they lost their composure, really, in that opening game. Now, obviously, we're six weeks on from there and teams have changed, but I do think there's a fundamental thing about Argentina that when they're in it, they're on it. But if they feel they're under pressure, they don't quite react in the way they, they need to. And 17-0 would have, that I think, would have been the game for Wales. So, I've, you covered Wales a lot in your previous roles and I've covered Wales too, slightly more recently. And I just thought it was a very non-Gatlandy Wales. Mm. Like they Often, when they were at their best under him, they took their chances for, stayed in the game and had one or two chances and took them. And sometimes they weren't the best team on the field, but they won the game. Whereas this was almost the opposite, where they were better than Argentina and they mm. had chances, but they just bunged a few of them. The line-out wasn't great. Some of their basic stuff let them down. And that's where I think they'll they'll probably all be already at home going, God, that was such a missed opportunity. Like they could have got through. Yeah, they? I got a tweet from someone at half-time who just said, he said he, he thought Wales had shot their bolts, as he put it, that that was their chance to, to grip the game and that, that that was it, that Argentina would come back. And it was a very prescient assessment of the situation because that was exactly what happened and, and Argentina took a grip on it and then it became this tense finale again and Wales are, are chasing, they're trying to force something to happen and they run a play that had been really successful for them through the first half, the kind of classic loop play, fly half just pulling the ball out the back. Costello, yeah. Costello it? just didn't quite get the... He, he did one of those that you often see, and, and Sexton often does it. He doesn't pull it, doesn't like rip it back, just sort of hangs it in the air for someone to come round and take it off him. And it felt like Costello just hung it in the air behind him when what was needed was a was a ripped back pass. A George North fizzer. Yeah, <laughs> and, and it was really well read, really well read from Nicolas Sanchez. Yeah. Um, and you talk about the colour of of the occasion and the noise when when uh, Argentina scored that winning try and the, and the jumping and the singing and the flinging of the hands and um but there was a great sort of spirit around the state even afterwards in the bars and getting on the tube on the metro to go back and watch the evening game from Paris it was just a, it was actually a really nice atmosphere Wales fans were disappointed but they were in great spirit still they were enjoy, almost enjoying the spectacle of of the Pumas fans singing and it's but it's just a it's a missed opportunity for Wales, yeah, and yeah. that's that's what will sting. That's what will sting because it was there for them to to win that game. And and I tweeted about it because I we got the binoculars out because we we're quite high up in the Stad Velodrome, and you just saw. I just love I just love the fact that Argentina slightly lost their heads a bit in, uh, having won the game. And I know mm. that others have said. Like I know Matt Dawson on the BBC pod was saying. I don't know what they're doing, wasting their energy doing that. But I kind of just love it that. So Emiliano Bilfelli. Has, has kicked them into the semi-finals of the World Cup, maybe unexpectedly, and he was shirt off, slapping <laughs> his chest in the crowd, fl- flinging that shirt round his head for ages. And there's a great picture, if you can find it, um, I put it on my Twitter account, of him in the crowd doing that. And I just thought, fair enough. Like, If these are the moments that you live for, why not celebrate them? Like, it was brilliant, wasn't it? It couldn't have been more contrasting to the way that England reacted to, to their yeah, win yeah. 24 hours later. Next I mean, it's, it, it, it was so next job that you, you just wonder whether Borthwick ever finds any fun in anything. And that's, that's England's mentality and that's how they're approaching it. I do enjoy... And, and it's Andy Farrell's approach too. 
which, is which, living, that kind which of again, thing. like critics will say, well, yeah, they celebrated beating South Africa in the pool, but what did that earn them? They're, they're going home. Well, they, but they enjoyed the day. They, they achieved something and they enjoyed it and they celebrated it. And I, I see nothing wrong with that because if, if everything is about the next job, then what's the point in doing the job you're doing now? Yeah, yeah. Well, that maybe leads us to a nice segue to England because they won their, sem- their quarterfinal, sorry, and it was harem scarum, wasn't it? But they got yeah. the job done. I mean, privately, quite a few of the players are talking about sort of 0-7-ing it and doing it yeah. hooker by crook. By hooker by they? crook. That's the, that's the phrase that keeps coming up. And there was, I mean, wow. So they're 14 points up, uh, 50-odd minutes, cigars out. I think one Nick Randall is our... A man in the office was saying they basically had the silver tray out with the cigars on it. And then suddenly, bang, bang, Fiji. I think I remember, I don't know if I said it to you, I was sitting next to you, Alex, but thinking at the time, 14-0 up is possibly not enough. Just You need to get 17-0 up, 17 points ahead, sorry, just to make sure that you can't be hit by the thunderbolts that yeah. Steve Borswick described them as. I felt that, so I was writing a, a, the first go of the match report Fairly on the whistle. I mean, the way that the way that it finished, you never hit it bang on. But as quickly as, as we could get it over. So you're writing as you go, and you're trying to assess and analyse the flow of the game as you go. And it was frantic at the time. It felt like Fiji were only ever one pass away from scoring a try at all times. Um, and so the way that England had to play was to defend with discipline and organisation, which they hadn't done against Fiji in in August. And they hadn't done a week earlier against Samoa. They absolutely monstered the breakdown. Ben Earl had his best game for England. We, and, you know, and he's, he's building up a catalogue of good performances. This was the best. Tom Curry and Courtney Laws. Just This was just another of Courtney's body on the line, um, peel him off the turf type performances that you get from Courtney. Especially after he got completely manhandled into touch by Bill Matter and Frank Lamani, wasn't yeah. it? I mean, that was, I think you wrote in your piece, that was akin to the Tyndall on Gregan hit in 03, one of those that will probably get replayed. But to be fair, he was then the guy that won the great turnover at the end. He yeah. Sti- he uh, sticks in, doesn't he? And, and Amazingly. That, I think, and then. Uh, so you're trying, you're trying to assess it as it goes, and, and it was easier after the match actually to just reflect back on on how England did it. But at the time, you always felt, like you say, that Fiji were one, one offload away from breaking England. But actually, they never built anything meaningful, Fiji, in that, in that first half. Because England did such a good job of chopping them. Their, their tackling was low, to the point where at one point... Almost too low. Tom Curry, Curry was penalised, yeah. could have got a yellow for that. But they were, they were chopping them down low. And they, they walked off blooded and bruised and, and battered. What that did, by chopping them low and then attacking the breakdown, they they denied Fiji any continuity and started to frustrate Fiji. And at the same time, they scored a couple of tries. So And I thought when they got 14 ahead, I thought that was critical because it gave them a cushion. It wasn't a match-winning cushion necessarily, and as it proved, but two, two converted tries ahead w- was the cushion that, that they needed. And then, of course, bang, bang, Fiji did build some continuity in attack which is really easy for them to do we saw it at Twickenham all it needs really is for that first offload to stick and then for the second runner to come through to uh, an offload to the third and then back and then they're in behind like the semi Rajaraja into Botitu that, that, that exactly yeah. and, and once they piece that together they're devastating against any team in the world and they did it back you know twice in four minutes the two Thunderbolts as both they called them and suddenly you're at 14 all uh, sorry, so, so only at 24 all. They scored, they've, they've closed that 14-point gap. 
And you're like, what do England do now? Mm. Because England lost their heads a bit against Samoa. And only and it was really the Danny Kerr and a couple of the others at the end. We've seen in the past, and this is going back a number of years, but we've seen days like that when Owen Farrell has not known what to do. Scotland at Twickenham is the most obvious example where the 31 points up, Scotland get on a roll, and England can't cope, and Farrell is losing his his um, rag. Losing his rag, frankly, he's certainly mm. losing his composure. England aren't going to get to the, this World Cup final playing Fijian rugby. No. We've always said, and we said it last week, I think, they have their style, and their style is fine. The criticism that's been levelled at them is that they've been doing it scruffily. Yeah. I felt, I felt they, they played well against Fiji. They're the only unbeaten team left in the yeah, competition, which is, mad, yeah. which is mad. They did what they had to do, but they showed a, c- a control and a composure when they could have panicked. Mm. And I thought that was, that was impressive from, from them. So I, here's where we might need to pull back the curtain slightly. And I know some of this is a bit boring for listeners who aren't in press conferences and all that. But I think it is helpful maybe to, to try and tell you guys what's happening out here. Uh, there was a lot of criticism, I think pretty fairly, for England in the Six Nations and, and August. They were 50-pointed at home, record defeat home to France, desperate performance. And if they hadn't been criticised then, I don't know when you would criticise mm. them. They then put together, they sort of fight, fought a little bit in Ireland and, and actually fronted up fairly well. And I think they were given credit for that, even though they lost. Then the August campaign was shambolic. Red cards almost every week. They looked unfit, leggy. They've explained that since by the fact that they were training very hard. Although not everyone in the, in the game buys that. No, buying. which is a valid point to make. They then got, then then have since been very, very annoyed. And then, and I would say that largely this is the head coach Steve Borthwick. This is less the players. Uh, they're trying to almost divorce themselves from some of the things that Borthwick's saying in press conferences, almost while sitting next to him. So they've they've taken it personally that people like me and Alex and others were critical of them in the summer. And I think it's an interesting dynamic now because Steve Borthwick came into his press conference after they won the quarter-final of the World Cup against Fiji in a, in a great game. And he couldn't be more downbeat. Chippy. And chippy. chippy. And I think it, that's okay when you're talking to journalists, but I think in those situations, you're not just talking to the media, you're talking to your country and to the fans. And I know he did it on ITV too, where everyone's written us off, there are people around here that never thought we would get out of the pool, never thought we'd get through, and here we are. And that's all kind of fine. But I think that it's a little bit much and a little bit unfair on supporters who've paid a lot of money, been promised a lot for a long time about this England team. And I think people just want to now enjoy the ride. And I think trying to score points and creating this siege mentality thing is okay. But I just think it's leaving a sort of sour taste maybe and like if he doesn't want to do the media stuff that's fine there's plenty of other people we'd like to speak to around the England team who are brilliant to speak to and there are a lot of the players that spoke very well last night and sort of get that connection between the fans and the country but I don't know what you thought about it I just thought it is a little bit cheap maybe I felt that I could see why England and Steve in particular would have used it to get them to this point they did come in for a lot of criticism. They, they were they'd won three games out of nine coming into the World Cup. We're not here to to provide blind support. There was no evidence to suggest that they were going to do anything major at this World Cup. Now, you could argue they still haven't given the teams that they've played, but they've made a World Cup semi final, 
And I think if you were to rewind to previous episodes of The Ruck and previous pieces that have been written, the general consensus about England was that they're not very good, but they'll probably make the semi-finals of the World Cup. I've talked to, to many people in the media and outside that that has long been in the, the analysis of what England are likely to do at this World Cup because of the draw. And we all know what, what the draw is. We don't have to have that conversation again. But, so I, but I can see why he would... He'd want to develop a siege mentality in order to get them this far. But having won the game, I'm not sure he struck the right tone because they've made the semi-finals and they've got a country behind them. Everyone wants England to win. All England fans want, want England to win. Um, you know, Quite frankly, people read more of what we do when England win. They buy more newspapers. They subscribe more to the Times. We probably get more listeners to the ruck. You know, we're, we're not here as supporters, but it's a much nicer job to do when England win. Trust me, it's a much nicer job yeah. to do. And they now go and play the Springboks. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if they look at what Wales tried to do against the box four years ago in the semi-final, turned it into a horrible game. Horrible game. <laughs> and honestly, if England get to 25 yards from, from the Springbok line, they should be dropping a goal every single time. Yeah, yeah. Don't, like, just go and, you know, South Africa are a dangerous, powerful team. They're also dangerous offensively. Incredible counter-attackers. Like some of those tries yeah, last Yeah, night. so there are wow. loads of other areas that will need to be smart and we'll investigate them and, and look at them through the week. They'll need to be really intelligent strategy, which Borthwick, that's his forte. He will, he will deliver that. Yeah. But I, I can see the drop goal strategy coming back into play big time. It's, going to be, it's just going to be good fun, isn't it? Like, I've got lots of Celtic friends and lots of <laughs> who are going. I'm zero from four from results I wanted from that week. <laughs> yeah, I was only one from four in predictions. But yeah, let's, let's oh, shout, over shout that. out by the way, John Westerby. John Westerby. So <laughs> readers of the Times will know that often we have to do these predictions, and they're a bit hiding to nothing sometimes. And particularly this weekend with some of the most unpredictable, brilliant quarterfinals you've ever seen. And our, our friend and colleague John Westerby. Got four from four. I mean, that is extraordinary. Yeah. Maybe not exactly the margins, but I don't know if that would have been ridiculous. Rayman, if he'd gone. <laughs> John's had a mighty week. Four for four predictions and a couple of outstanding pieces. The Bottier piece is lovely. Yeah, yeah a lovely piece with Levani Bottier and a piece on on the French players um, and their their links to the, these tiny islands near in, in the South Pacific, uh, which is although France have have gone home a little puncture some of the atmosphere that's still worth a read it's a great piece so shout out to john yeah absolutely right i think our um tgv is leaving fairly soon to get up to paris to join all the others up, up in the capital but should we just give alfie a quick god or goddess of the week or devil i'll go first very quickly you mentioned him before the boff we've got to have buffelli absolutely loved it shirt off slapping the chest in with the puma fans Loved it, and he scored loads of points, and is is brilliant. So Class. he's my god. Uh, well, yeah, let's. I mean, there's so many from up in up in Paris, but seeing as we're in Marseille, I'll stick with with being down here. Can I do a collective England back row? I know Owen Farrell was man of the match, but I the, just I just the, thought the, the, uh, the, you're going for the Holy Trinity, then? Are you? The Holy Trinity, <laughs> yeah, Holy Trinity, yeah. Can they call themselves that, or has that been trademarked by? Back Delalio and Hill. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. They got away. I go. just thought collectively they they laid the groundwork for England and when and it's so great to see Ben Earl delivering on the potential that's always been there and when Courtney's in the mood that he was in and we've seen it times before took me straight back to Sydney 2002 one of those performances where he just leads everything so I'm going to pick them fully aware that there are lots of heroes up in uh, up in Paris but from down in Marseille those are our two. Gods of the week. 
Awesome. Well, that's been Marseille. We're now Paris for two weeks. Whatever happens, there'll be a third, fourth player for someone. Who knows? Um, but maybe World Cup final. That would be so. So for for the people who criticise England and written them off, they they will be ready to make the World Cup final. There you go. That's that's our dispatch, Elfie from Marseille. But see you all up in Paris pretty soon. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, thanks, Will. Thanks, Alex. Good to speak to them and we'll catch up with them in Paris as they join us up here in the capital for the remaining two weekends of the Rugby World Cup. Uh, Slotty, Steve, Chris, quick semi-final preview then. New Zealand against Argentina, South Africa against England after the weekend we've just had of arguably the best quarterfinals we've ever seen. Mm. Can anyone see these semi-finals being anything other than an all-black and springbok victory? Yeah, but- when you say quick semi-final preview, that this is going to be really quick. <laughs> we know what's going to happen. Yeah, well, the fact well, is, you know, you, you, the, the World Cups are littered with inability to produce two good performances in a row. But I, quite honestly, uh, I'd like to see England actually produce two average performances in a row because, you know, to, to play for, for periods where they do raise their level to, to win a game against Fiji, who, you know, could have won. At the, at the end. Argentina are not the Argentina we expected to be at this World Cup. I can't see anything other than what we expect with New Zealand and South Africa. Well, first of all, you really hope that Argentina have that passion from somewhere. Um, they did play a little bit better against Wales, um, but uh, and, and you know, let's hope that England. Look, England's England is so ins- uninspiring that we do need them to put up a display. They could get the country back on side just by flogging themselves and, and making it making it difficult for the opposition. And there's so many people at home who have not been excited by England rugby for years, so let's wish them the best. I, I do think that um, they're one of the teams that's still playing old kick-and-rush rugby, and they haven't picked up the pace of this World Cup. This is the time for them to do it. This is the time. I think you're... I- spot on there Steve in terms of like the excitement was something that Alfie agrees with me I know yeah well I thought I better at some point he's trying to get get that red card rescinded (laughs) can I can I say I I agree with Steve as well I'm so disappointed with the number of rugby loving friends and family who've who've registered their deep 
antipathy for this England team, and it's and it's just sad. And 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 I'm with Steve. I, I just England have got got a chance now to do something that really lifts hearts and spirits and and brightens souls and makes people fall in love with it again. I I, I so hope that I don't think they will, but it would. They have an opportunity. It is extraordinary, though, isn't it? It was going to be something that. I maybe mentioned, I know we've just heard from Alex and Will and, and they spoke a lot about England, but has a side ever got to a semi-final before, a Rugby World Cup, and have such little excitement? And it's partly, I think, because of the draw, in that a lot of England fans have looked at it and say, well, England have had a for- fortunate draw. Yes, they've done what they've needed to do to get to a semi-final, but they don't see them going any further. But I don't, that, just that whole feeling around the team does feel strange. It, it does, and I, I, I think it probably happened before. In the early World Cups, I mean, South Africa weren't in it. Uh, then, so there were just a, there were a couple of sort of slightly uh, iffy people who got through the semi-final, but um, n- nothing nothing like a full-blown World Cup. So, look, I, I don't I think we've Sotty and uh, has covered it perfectly. Come on, boys, g- just give us a blast for the hour. And Steve Borthwick, don't keep on wittering about it and and saying what a great side you've got. Kick them in the backside and get out there and and, and cause bloody havoc. Well, 2007, you know, England were a shambles of 36-0 against South Africa. And they started doing things in the quarter start. They, they managed to win the semi-final, got to a final. And you thought, well, how did they do that? And I think you're probably saying the same thing this time. How did they do that? Yeah, how did they? Yeah. I just yeah. didn't know whether 2007 was different because I felt like the Australia in the quarterfinal was more of a challenge than they've faced so far in this tournament. It was, it was. It, it, it was. It, that was very specific, though. It was two players. Uh, yeah. they, uh, don't forget that, that was carnage at the scrum. Um, caused by Andrew Sheridan and, and Phil Vickery that, that was a total collapse in one position OK boys well I'll tell you what we're possibly planning on doing or plans are in the pipeline at the moment to have a semi-final preview coming out towards the end of the week so I fly back into Paris on Thursday so it might end up in your feed late Thursday possibly on Friday for you to listen to before that first semi-final right, once we've had a little bit more build up and we've let the dust settle on the quarterfinals hopefully we'll get that to you later in the week it means gents we can move on to the final thing god or goddess of the week I think there is a heap of options for us the amount of times that we particularly when we're in the studio back in london that we get to this section everyone's all all of a sudden scratching their head trying to think of all who shall i select i think there is so much to choose from would anyone like to kick us off for their god or goddess of the week well ardy survey would be the obvious one that's fine i would put in a a, a, also a big thumbs up for muvaka yes yesterday a performance by a hooker Yeah, he's just—he was just absolutely magnificent. But I'd probably go Ardi Severe because finally the rest of the team decided they would help him win a game, and that must be a great, great help for him mentally and physically. I, I, I'm going to go for a player I'd never rated as Richie Moanga. I thought he had a tremendous game, a career game. Uh, obviously, he was on the front foot. The way he created that try—I mean, what, what, what gas he showed! So Richie Monga of uh, of New Zealand for me, and I'm sorry, Richie, I never rated you. Slotty. Well, I, I, I suppose I should I should say Sam Kane because I already said he's my he's my player of the weekend. Just to take it in a slightly different direction, when the game got slightly broken not at Sunday night, I, I hadn't seen Matthew Jalibert's dancing feet like that. I mean, so he was such an elusive uh, uh, ball carrier. I, mm. I, I I hadn't seen that before. It, it, it was kind of slightly throwback fly half play. I, I'll, I'll have him as my god for now. Good one. It's a good one. I was actually going to go Sam Kane as well because I thought he was outstanding for a player that I know 
has has kind of been referenced, has often been criticised, particularly amongst the New Zealand public. I thought he was absolutely brilliant and led from the front. And I think that comment by Peter Omani on that tour of you're just a poor man's Richie McCaw or words to that effect, um, I think he had a point to prove and I thought he was excellent. But in terms of also, I'm conscious that we've had quite a few All Blacks, I'll give it to a Springbok and the man we mentioned of Cheslin Colbert. You look at moments, you look at a one-point win in a quarter-final against the home side and a charge-down conversion that we never see. I'll no. give it to, to Cheslin Colbert. Very good. good. Uh, Slotty, you're off to get the Eurostar? Yeah, but I'll be back almost immediately. Um, Perfect. You know, England in the semi-final. Nowhere else to be, huh? Absolutely. Well, you're public demand you're back as, as well. Viewers and listeners and um, readers. The public vote. It's like the X Factor. They it's need got... you there. Let's carry on. I'm liking this. Well, okay. Chris, you've also got a flight tonight. <laughs> yes, you... I'm going to find a new airport. It's meant to be called Bove. I've never flown from it before. I think somebody's actually sold me a pub, and it, it doesn't exist. It but I'll let airport? you know. Okay, great. And Steve, you're staying out now for the duration of the yes, tournament. Yes, I'm going straight back to bed now. Absolutely. And I'll be uh, coming back on, on Thursday. Great to see you all. Just a little bit of in-house admin as well. A reminder that all episodes of How to Win the World Cup are available on the Ruck podcast feed. You can hear from Sean Fitzpatrick, Joel Stransky, John Eels, Comrade Smith, Lawrence Delalio, Francois Lowe and Fury Dupria about what it takes to win the World Cup. So make sure you get that. And then also the game, which is the Times and Sunday Times' football podcast, is available every Monday and Tuesday as well. But as well as that, they've just released an England special all about Gareth Southgate. So you can go and check that out wherever you get your podcast from. This has been the Ruck from the Times and the Sunday Times. Follow or subscribe from wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you next time. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers. Airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.